0: Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. On this edition of the Open Trailer Podcast, if I were to tell you that today's guest could have been a legit rock star. Matter of fact, was a local rock star. Even if you don't believe me now, once you hear the story, you'll understand why Greg Peters could have gone in a completely different direction than racing. However, he didn't and became a very accomplished racer throughout the state of Maine. We dig into his roots as a member of the Mo Tweedy Mafia. We get into some of his early success on dirt. And Greg's a man of many nicknames. Grand National Greg comes to mind The young man from Westbrook is another one, but where do these names come from? We attempt to get to the bottom of one of them in the first stage. This episode, like all the others, supports Maine Vintage Race Car Association. We appreciate your support. Become a member at mainevintagerace.org. That's mainvintagerace.org. You can become a member for less than $2 a month. Look at your credit card statement. Look at what you're spending per month on other services. Yeah, not even $2 a month to help preserve something that we know, since you're a listener, you care a lot about, and that's the history of racing in Maine, which is what we preserve. MainVintageRace.org for all your information. Let's dig into stage number one of Greg Peters on the Open Trailer Podcast. So we're sitting in your house, and uh, it's a Saturday morning. It's just like four degrees out. Uh, you know, like what, what's going on? Like, what is your day today like?
1: My day-to-day doesn't really consist of much now with my illness. I kind of have to lay low. Mm. But we have to take the new car that Gail got over to Berlin Mm. City. And then uh, from there, I'm going to head over to Willie Davis's up in Woolwich and take a peek at the vintage project that we're both working on and got to get out, got to get it, keep moving.
0: It was inevitable that you would be on this podcast at some point for the listeners what sped this along is last Saturday I was taking a radio station van out to um, I was just driving it around and I stopped and got gas anyway long story short battery died battery died and I would have to walk back to the station which was a complete pain I looked for my phone and the first name that I thought of that might answer the phone was fairly local and might show up was Greg Peters so I gave you a call. Despite your illness, despite everything going on right now, you were there within 10
1: minutes. Yep. <laughs> that's what I do. Right. You know, I have my circle of friends that I really admire. And like I told you, if I had, uh, I would never even had a second thought about it.
0: Well, that's the central theme to uh, what you're doing today, what you were doing last week. Um and something that I think is a pretty big
1: constant throughout your racing career is that you're always helping somebody. The struggles that I went through, to, to I mean, the buzzword is, how bad do you really want this? Mm. And I really wanted it. And you reach a point in your career where it's time to give back. And I've always been somebody that just enjoyed helping people, be a good, be a bad but most of the stuff that I've worked on for other people, I, I pretty much think I've helped out their program, and you know somebody keeps saying, "Well, you, you, you know, you keep doing this, you're gonna get burned one of these times." Yeah. But it didn't really matter, you know what I mean? I mean, our program was up and running, and I mean, I worked with Derek Neal and Dustin Reynolds, a uh, whole bunch of young kids, and I I just enjoyed it, be it whatever.
0: You hit on something that was. Uh Very interesting in that that comment about how bad do you want it? At what point did you realize you wanted it? When did that first happen to you?
1: I was 15 years old and there was a Getty station in the Cumberland Mills area, Westbrook, Hmm. that some guy opened. I I had no idea who it was. I happened to be dating a girl that lived across the street at the time. And after a few days or a week or whatever it was, happened to notice a race car sitting out front. And I had been going to Beatridge for, oh, I don't know, three, four years.
0: Do you remember the first time that you were at the racetrack?
1: I think late 60s, maybe. And it was with a neighbor of mine that had taken me over there. And because at that time, you had to be there by two in the afternoon. You were there till midnight. Mm. But I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it.
0: What was the first thing that you remember uh, about being at, I assume it was Beatridge? Right. Um, What was uh, the first thing that... The first... Memory that you still have today of the racetrack?
1: I guess the biggest thing was, and it it might sound kind of strange, helmet versus no helmet. Now, you'd watch the guys drive around in their cars, Hmm. and they got the helmet on, and they got the certain characteristics of their face or whatever. Then you'd see a lot of guys would walk through the grandstands. And I was like, nah, that can't be the guy. That is the guy. He's only 5'3". You know what I mean? So I was
0: right because in your mind they were all eight feet tall. They had hands the size of exactly, tires.
1: Exactly. I mean, I idolized pretty much every driver over there. You know what I mean? And it was a big deal when they came in the stands. And back then, you know, we had the model giveaways. The uh, you could go on the track and have your picture taken with the Tangways or the or whoever. And and I was I was hooked. Hook line and sinker.
0: Who was your Who was your driver?
1: Back then, I mean, it was a uh, a guy that worked at the men's shop. He had a C-class car. and Men's shop in Westbrook? In Westbrook. You, was it because he was from Westbrook? I, th- I think so, and the car was parked on Brown Street, back where I lived. Uh, his first name was Larry. I don't know what his last name was, but mm. his catchphrase was, Larry's what? 74 so that makes no sense <clears throat> no <laughs> <laughs> so we go get the iron on patches and we got the shirts and all. it didn't matter mm-hmm. we we had found a driver and then as I progressed and I got more familiar with the names Daley was probably my most famous driver a favorite driver I should say because back then those guys had all the red suits on the crew was all dressed you know like similar to what we do today and I love the looks of that car that three car and obviously the Tangway brothers mm-hmm. uh so there was just a lot of, again, helmet versus no helmet, and, and it was, yeah, I just found it intriguing.
0: So to clarify that for me, when you say helmet versus no helmet, there were drivers who were racing without helmets, or no, what no. drivers looked like without their helmets exactly.
1: on? Exactly, what they looked like without a helmet on, and back then, most of them wore open face helmets, you know what I mean? Right. But then, obviously, the position of how they're sitting in a car, I mean, back then, some were sitting low, but most of them were up pretty high but it, it just, hmm. I, I remember, it was, I think it was Kelvin Barney came walking through the grandstands with a 33, and this guy's about 5'2", right. and I'm like, no, nah, that can't be him, that can't be him, but Gosh it guy. is.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Um, let's get back to the Getty Station now. So you're fascinated with racing. Uh, you obviously want to do it, and then you see this Getty Station, and, and you start working there, or how does this connection happen?
1: Well, obviously, we, we struck up a conversation with Mo. Who's Mo? Mo Tweedy. That's okay. what they called him, Mo. and
0: Mo owns this gas station. Mo
1: owns the gas station. Right. And obviously, like I said, we, we didn't follow him that much over there. And I don't think he raced every week. But as we struck up a conversation, he asked us if we'd like to help him work on it. So we actually, uh, uh, me and my girlfriend's brother, lettered one of the B-class cars he did and started paying the wheels, you know, all the stuff that kids would do. And then he said are you guys interested in coming to the racetrack? And I said, well, I'm not old enough to get in the pit. I think it was 18 at the time. Wow. So, we forged the release form and got in the pit. And like I said, back back then I, it wasn't really with Mo working on setups of the race car, it was more like learning how to fight. To get out of the pit alive, you know what I mean? That This guy was a fighter sure. and we soon found that out that pretty much every Saturday night that we raced over there, there was trouble. The success wasn't that great over there, mm. but it was an mm. eye-opening experience.
0: Yeah, it was an eye-blackening experience, too. That, too, too if you we weren't careful. Can you tell me about
1: the first time that you were in the pits? Do you remember that? Absolutely. Yeah. It was in the spring, obviously opening day. I am driving the ramp truck. Wait, how old are you? Fifteen. No license. No license. Nothing.
0: So you became the driver...
1: I became the uh, the rig driver, the hollow driver. Why wasn't Mo driving? Well, he liked to drink, uh, and half the time, uh, at least on the way home, he was yep. per- pretty drunk. So I drive in the pit, and there'd been a lot of rain that spring, I neglect to see the sign by where the concession stand is, that says, don't go beyond this point. And I went beyond that point, <laughs> and I got that truck stuck oh. right to the frame. On opening day,
0: right? Because for those that don't know, Beach Ridge has a dirt pit area, and we have a you know season called Mud Season in Maine. And you know you're you're in the class of people. There are a number of them who went past that point and sunk
1: into the ground. So that didn't start the day off well. No,
0: your career did not start off strong.
1: No, I almost got fired, <laughs> and it took a while to get it out because. That particular area that I was in, was there was mud all around. I think it took, I don't know, two, three records to get that thing out. So all the practice time or whatever the routine was, which I knew nothing about, we, that kind of went down the drain right. Till we found a place to park. But that, I vividly remember that like it was yesterday. He was none too happy. Right.
0: But you got the taste. Do you remember how he did that night? No. Mo was known, Mo Tweedy, known as a as a brawler. right people would come after his crew young people like yourself like tell me about that experience
1: well they assumed that some people did that I was his brother Andrew he had a brother named Andrew and another younger brother uh, they believed it so much that and I'll get off the subject a little bit we go into a tavern in Portland which I remain nameless hmm. and I got served beer at the age of 15 they thought I was his brother statute
0: of limitations has passed
1: yeah exactly yeah. I can't be prosecuted for that anymore yeah. So, we really had a had a. There weren't that big of a circle of friends back then, that he because everybody was like mad at him at some point or other. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we we established a relationship with a few people over there, uh, and and it was okay. It's so when we traveled, the different tracks of the trouble really started happening, and yeah, it's all hands on deck.
0: Before we move on with that, um, let's stick with the Beech Ridge thing. Who was the first person that you saw in the pits that you were like, "Wow, I'm here, I'm with this guy or this you know family or whatever it might be."
1: I think it was the Tangways and Dale Avery. Yeah. and of course Dick Walsh knew him. I mean Roger Hanscom. There was a, excuse me, there was a bunch in that whole area that, mm. you know, again I idolized ninety five percent of these drivers just from sitting in the bleachers watching them. You know, what I mean it didn't I didn't have a particular and as time progressed. Then you establish your favorites.
0: How hard was it not to not to geek out? How hard was it to play cool when you
1: first met those people? Uh, extremely hard not to make a fool of yourself. Right. You know what I mean? I mean I, I still today uh, there are there are some drivers that are, that I I have a lot of admiration for and mm-hmm. the history of what they did and I mean, Dick Walsh a ten time track champion, no one no one is gonna ever beat that. No one. Yeah. That that era's gone. So I I was uh, like seeing a rock star. You know what I mean? I was awestruck.
0: At what point do you decide to drive? 17 maybe. But that isn't, racing isn't, a lot of people that we have on the Open Trailer Podcast, racing is all they did, but not you.
1: Well, no, I mean, I I was playing in a rock band and that kind of got in the way of the racing part because it both was on the weekends, you know what I mean? What was your band? Lobby Soul Diggers. The Lobby I played,
0: Soul Diggers.
1: Played bass guitar and we were, we won the State of Maine Battle of the Bands and got to travel to the Nationals in North Carolina.
0: Did you ever record music?
1: We made a tape for uh, EAB Recording Studios uh, way back when. And that's when we incorporated Brass Section in the band. No kidding. How many people were in that band? Uh, seven. And we did a lot of Chicago and uh, Ides of March vehicle and. We wanted to change. That was kind of my idea that we get onto something different. And back then we were doing the Eagles Club thing, and I I hated that. But then we got out. This Ed Boucher in uh, Lewiston was the big uh, manager guy at that point, Mm. and started booking us all over the place. And you are making good money doing this. We were making real good money for a bunch of kids. Yeah, you know, we played at a lot of colleges and stuff. And I mean, when we frat parties or. Uh, no, just yeah. like Kent's Hill School, private stuff. Were you a cover band, or did you have original songs? No, we had no original. It was all a cover band. What were some of your favorite songs to play? Uh, again, uh, we played uh, I Got a Line on You.
0: Yeah. We, we
1: played... Uh,
0: You're a bass player, so... Yeah.
1: What are some of your songs,
0: favorite songs to play on bass? Uh,
1: Chicago stuff. 25 I mean, or 624? 25 or 624. That song
0: is so hard to play. Yep. People don't realize. New nope. When they think of Chicago some people, depends on when they're born, all they can think of is like Look Away and, you know, their power ballads. But Chicago with Terry Kath. Yep. Like Jimi Hendrix wanted to play like him.
1: Yep, exactly. (laughs) You know
0: what I mean? So, I mean, that's hard stuff to play.
1: We had a kid in the band named Michael Gallant Hmm. who could take and write all the horn charts instinctively. He would listen to the song and write the charts for the guys on the horns. The way we broke this band in Excuse me, was they had a um, celebrity basketball game at Westbrook High School one night versus the alumnus. And we asked them if we could play at halftime just to see how this horn thing would work out. And we busted open with vehicle by the odds of March. That's a steep ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And these guys, we took guys out of the, the marching band that had the horn section. We had two trumpets and a trombone. Mm. And I will never, ever forget this for the rest of my life. When we got done with that song, we got a standing ovation. And I'm like, oh. They okay. probably
0: never heard it. I mean, they, that type there of was, music. There
1: was, no. There was no one back then that was doing a horn section. And once I left that band, they, they continued on for quite a few years. Mm. But I, I didn't like the club thing. Uh, uh, weddings. Weddings are the worst thing you can do with a rock and roll band because you just sitting it down. around. Yeah. Turn it down. I
0: want to have a conversation with my aunt.
1: But I will tell you this. I mean, you see my kid in there, my drum kit. Hmm. I would I, I, would have stayed in that if it had not been for racing. I really enjoyed it. Hmm. I absolutely enjoyed it. I still, you know. Bro, I know you, you play there. drums. You're great. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jam out today. I still listen to all kinds of music. and, But the racing was, to me at that time, okay, this is what I. Do
0: I you ever can. regret not staying with uh, the, the music?
1: A little bit, but again, it's like, how bad do you want this? Right. Okay. You wanted racing more. Yeah.
0: So about 17, 18, you start getting involved with with driving. Tell me about your first race car.
1: My first race car was a 67 Malibu that I was running a gas station in Gorham at the time on Route 25, where the old bowling alley was. Mm -hmm. We went up to the farm out back, Mr. Rines' farm, and welded the cage. in. And back then, you had to have the full front seat, and the motor had a head gasket issue, so we'd have to take one of the spot plugs out every once in a while and let the water drain out and all this stuff. I tow-barred this thing to the racetrack, but Can I you won. explain
0: that for our younger listeners?
1: Yeah. It was a uh, hitch that went on the back of your vehicle that clamped to the bumper of the vehicle that you were pulling. Right. Now, if you had a good night.
0: You didn't put it on a trailer? No.
1: Didn't have that luxury so yet. So
0: your tires, your
1: race tires, are going on the highway? Going on the highway, And if you had a bad night, it was pretty difficult to get it home. (laughs) Okay? If you can think about it. Oh, yes. The right front's towed out a foot or whatever. The thing is, I won the second week out. Now, we started 47 cars. And you're running C-class? It's called Daredevils. Oh. D-class. Okay. The Daredevil class. 74? 72. 72. 72. And And I'll never forget the first race. Uh, We started... I don't know, probably 38th out of 47. They took off out front. We were still coming down the backstretch. And on the first lap, we came down the backstretch, and I think 20 of us piled up. So after night one, this Malibu, I we, mean, we chopped up some pretty nice looking stuff mm. to go racing. Looked like it had been raced for like four years. But I won the second week out. You know, it was a shifter on the call, and the front seats going up and down, flabbing around. Track was rough as hell. But then I'm like, well, not that. But I'm like, the problem is back then when you win, you pull up out front. The tech man's there. Oh. They pop the hood. I didn't have an alternator belt on it. or It had to be all original. He slams the hood. It was Ray Wooster at the time. Slams the hood, takes the trophy, takes the flag, and tells me to hit the pit. So now I'm DQ'd.
0: You got... Was that a legit D? Like, I'm not a mechanic. Tell me if that... The parts where you a did you know that you couldn't do that?
1: Uh, yeah, but we used to run a. <laughs> you know, I'm being honest now. No, go ahead. Because it doesn't matter anymore. Right? No, but it
0: doesn't. I'm just trying we, to figure
1: out your brain. We would run a Volkswagen fan belt on the pulleys yeah. to give the engine a little more power, not drag it down. We all need a belt, and you don't even need horsepower at Beechridge. Uh, negative. That's the, no, that's the that funny wasn't thing. That even an issue. Yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm not going to get out of this. I have no. I'm devastated. Okay, but I knew it wasn't right so back then there was a little tower in the pit over the back fence that that was Ray Worcester's tower so I mosey on up there after a few minutes and I came up with every excuse in the book and he said look here's the deal that alternate is so rusty there's never been a belt on that thing so don't even give me that (laughs) all right? but I'm telling you this right now and they even wrote about in the program that there was an issue but here's your trophy and here's your flag back and your hat but don't do it again. So I learned my lesson that day. You never cheated again. Uh, no, I, I never, <laughs> I never played that game. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. And they, back in the super sportsman days, they, they weighed my hood. They thought I had a lightweight hood, and I did not. know I couldn't afford that stuff. But
0: when uh, you won that race, were you able to get out of the car? Oh yeah, and have the victory lane interview.
1: Uh, I'm not sure they did that. Uh, well, Calvin Reynolds was the flag man. And I assume they did on-track interviews. I'm not really sure.
0: What do you remember about winning that race? Like, what was the last five laps
1: like? I just drove it. The thing that was the ironic part, you had to run the same size tires all the way around. That particular model of car had 775 14s. Well, I need to get tires. So a buddy of mine worked at Century Tire, and he brings me four retreaded, 775 14s. Hmm. And those things were as soft as bubble gum. Which, back then, I didn't know anything about juice and Tires. We didn't right. do that. But I remember putting them on that night. I'm like, holy smokes, this thing has got some, you know, for what yeah. it was, grip. And I, back then, wasn't the smoothest dude on the track. But it was like hammering down to the front. Well, you and didn't I, know how to race. I had no idea how to race. Yeah. And I remember just keep... Trugging, Did you see the white flag and the checkered flag? And I remember taking that checkered flag and again pulling up out front and 22 seconds later, I'm headed to the pit. But Did you feel any elation or relief oh yeah. when you got that yeah. checkered flag? Was oh someone yeah, was, chasing you? Was it a close race? I, I don't remember that either. I know yeah. after a while with another car I had, uh, myself and Rick Meserve actually had a dead heat and he raced a dead heat. And they got us both out off front. The crowd was going nuts. So I think we were the only ones that still hold that to this day.
0: Can you tell me the they've had a few ties right. even in my time at Beatridge. Right. Um, I can think of one, Joe Pastore and Jason Larrabee right. was a was a killer yep. race, one of my favorites yep. that I've ever been a part of. Uh, but this race, you win and you know, or even like the Rick Meserve tie. Can you tell me the difference? between the crowd going nuts at a concert versus the crowd going nuts on the racetrack for you
1: it was loud. It yeah. was absolutely deafening yeah it was uh, I'd, it was a midsummer night, you know, and again, the place was packed. Uh, I think Bruce was announcing at that I don't remember mm. who was announcing, but again, nobody had ever seen like a dead heat in a heat race right So we were both there with a the picture. I had that picture somewhere, and I, I can't find it. Mm-hmm. Holding the flag, but it, it was it was a uh, you know a cool moment in my career.
0: Uh, can you tell me about your family dynamic growing up, and how supportive, or if not,
1: they were in those early days? They hated it, so yep. they weren't
0: racers at all. No,
1: no. And then the one time they did go was back when I was driving a late model for Daryl Robinson, and I stuffed it right in the wall right where they were sitting. What year is this about? Br- must have been early eighties. Uh, well, 81 and 2 is when I ran my late most. I think it was before that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not good with dates. So the point is, you've been running for a number of
0: years, and they haven't seen any of your None. racing. Zero. Would they read about it in the newspaper? Uh, maybe.
1: Or, yeah But they didn't really hear about it. And then they 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 started to get involved back uh, in, in the 90s when I had my super sportsman. They helped me a lot financially. and yeah. But for all those years I raced, they didn't want to. In the very beginning. Well, they thought my priorities were... In the wrong place, but were your priorities though? Well, I mean, I gave up a lot. I lost, uh, you know, went through a divorce and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But, but when you want it that bad, I mean, it's a disease that, I mean, I've taken people to the racetrack, out in the pit that have never been to the racetrack, and they get hooked. Okay, I mean, that's the experience that they get.
0: Do you ever see the light come on in someone's eyes? And you know they're feeling exactly the way that you did when you first saw the Tangway brothers.
1: My wife's a good example. Yeah. She uh, was a Babson College graduate. She was an intern up here at the mill in the summertime and came with a friend of hers, Rachel Plant. She knew absolutely nothing, nothing about racing. And again, got hooked. And, And then she took it upon herself to... No names, drivers, and teams, and people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she works on this car out here with me. She understands it. She gets it. She supports it. And
0: is Isn't that, it neat, though, when you see that happen in somebody? It's huge. Yeah. What was the first number that you ran?
1: 47. Why? Which was Paul Rowe's number back in the day. We were 47 in a C-Class car and stuff. Mm-hmm. The reason I took 09 is because Dick Walsnum, when I had it on the car, he used to call me 09 Bodine because I sat wicked low in that lay model.
0: Yeah.
1: And back then, for some reason, when the announcer, be it Bruce Elder or whatever, he'd always say, Greg Peters in the 09. They'd buzz off the number. And for, for some reason that number is somewhat catchy. you know. So I'm looking for the catch thing. Mm-hmm. That what will people recognize? And every night, every race, everything was Greg Peters in the 09. Greg Peters the Peach King God No 09. That so, sounds
0: like Bruce Elder.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was. Right. I mean, he still calls me the young man from Westbrook. This
0: where did that come from? Because a lot of people know you as Grand National Greg. Right. So the young man from Wyndham, where did this come from? Westbrook.
1: Westbrook, excuse me. Where did that come from? I have no idea. You'd have to ask him, but, I, yeah. but I, I'd be interested in asking him that.
0: Do you want to find out why you're the young man from Westbrook? Yes, I do. Okay, let's call Bruce. We don't have the technology to pipe it in, but we're going to okay. find out here. Hopefully he answers his phone.
1: Good morning.
0: Hey, good morning, Bruce. How are you? Excellent. I'm interviewing Greg Peters right now for the podcast, and uh, and we have a question for you. Why did you call him the young man from Westbrook? Where did that come from?
1: I'm not sure to tell you the truth, but
0: um, I guess that, um, I don't know how old he was, then, he can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, You know, I think I always tried to say the town or the city that somebody was from, and I don't know, it just seemed to be a a good handle for him, you know. Um, Because, you know, sometimes race announcers, we come up with something that we don't even think about, and then it becomes something that they stick with for years. So, yeah. Well, good enough. Uh, Well, I appreciate you picking up the phone. Not many people do that. (laughs) Tell them I said hi. always will, yeah, Yeah, you know that great job with that the whole deal. Oh, thank you. Greg says hello, and uh, we'll get back to uh, our business here. Thank you for your time. Hey, always always glad to get in, and hey, tell him happy birthday. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Bruce. So you get out of racing, and um, do you still go to the racetrack?
1: We didn't go to Beatrice believe it or not. We started traveling to cup races, Gail and I. Did
0: you purposely stay away from the local racing scene? Because you knew that if
1: you were there, you'd want to be in the seat? Right. Yeah, because it happened. It happened ten years later. so <laughs>
0: They they reeled you back in.
1: Well, I mean, I we yeah. started going over there and uh, we had just bought this place and uh, Bill Panette had a really good going Firebird and uh, my nephew knew of him, uh, Kevin and Gary and hmm. the car was for sale so we took a ride up and took a look at it and I came back and asked Gail, what do you think? And I said, well, go for it if you want to do it. And I had nothing. I had sold everything. I didn't have a toolbox. There was no garage here at the time. Were you working at the Getty Station still? No. This is in the mill era now. I'm working at the mill. Okay. So, What yeah. were you doing at the mill? Uh, well, I started Paper off, mill in Westbrook, by the paper way. Paper mill, right. Good old F.D. Warren. I started off as a laborer, an inside truck driver, per se. Then I ended up being a supervisor for the next 25 years in the coding department. And I remember... So
0: when you got that car, what was it like getting that car in the garage here? The garage Mahal, we now call it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was pretty cool. I had it in my dad's garage, actually, on Brown Street. And I'm like, I had to put the motor back in. But again, I had nothing to work with. I put all the windows in with big headed rivets with a hand rivet gun. Try that one out Mm -hmm. and that'll wear you out. But I remember doing the whole thing and I remember struggling trying to get the engine in and got it in. But the problem was at the time they had changed the weight rule and de facto was very successful in the uh, that limited series back then and decided to we worked together at the mill who was going to help me set it up. Well, the problem was they added weight to these cars and I didn't know that. So we had to add uh, 200 pounds of lead to this thing and it killed it. Oh, wow. And I didn't have a clue how to drive pavement, you know.
0: So you came back and it was 1994?
1: Yeah. And I think I gotta backtrack a little bit. I did this season at Wiscasset. Oh, well let's talk about that. Right, yeah, I think we should. Yeah. Because uh I, I, I don't know the year, but there is a picture of the car I drove. It was a Laguna number forty seven. I saw a picture of that and it looked like it was Wiscasset. So you yep. went back from the four to the forty seven. Right. And uh had a friend of mine, Mike Williams, that was part of owner on that and we decided to go race Wiscasset. Well I ended up winning a uh Quick stops to Main Series, 75 lap open. That's your race announcer voice. Which is, yeah, which is my first trophy that I've ever gotten. And the ironic part, it was, I'll jump ahead of 2014. John won his first Pro Stock feature was Wisconsin. But I remember anyway, that day. We raced there a full season, and that's basically what that car looked like after a full season, not a scratch on it. And I remember there was like 10 of us in that class talking about Chuck Chance, Mike Moody, uh, Scott Chebacca those are big names yeah. yeah but we had to take care of ourselves because back then that's when the track was struggling financially but I wanted to try pavement racing and I just my goal back to get pavement racing was to be a smooth driver like in the super sportsman division yes I want to win but I don't want to win tonight and be 13th next week I want to be that guy that they point out and go that dude is a top 5 runner every week in fact, Dave Bushley was talking to me one night. He didn't know me from Adam. He said, yeah, I was talking to somebody. It was the dude in the 09 car. He's like, well, that dude runs in the top five. Of it's a good good car. That was my goal, believe it or not. You know, and, and I sucked. When I first went out there, so I am mm-hmm. trying to drive dirt on pavement, you know, and it's not working out. Did anybody help you figure out how to drive pavement? Yeah, I mean, I had a buddy of mine that helped me work on the car. and It was just, uh, I was moving on. Fortunately, I, I sold that car to Gary Manogno, you know, and got good money for it and then I bought Steve Perry's Donny Corporate Driven Super Sportsman that night they won the championship the car went on my trailer and then the Lumina went on Gary's trailer and again I got good money for it happily ever after so that season at was and Ken Miner would have killed me if I because he'd already sent me a message to mention mm-hmm. that that was a fun year I, I, we enjoyed that because we weren't crashing a lot and wrecking stuff and the guys that own Mike Moody's car, I think it was Norm's used cars, if we got rained out, let me park my car there at their shop. The night I won that 75-lapper, they had a keg party for us at the house. We didn't know these people from Adam. Really? So that was pretty cool.
0: So, yeah, so what was the atmosphere at Wiscasset like compared to Beechridge, which is all you have known?
1: I mean, it was basically the same thing. You, you know, We all kind of had to get along mm. to survive, to continue to race because we – the flagman every week would call out somebody We'd have a meeting and if you messed up and did something wrong he'd call you out and then they emphasized the fact with no cars you have no race so you need to take care of yourself you guys can't be out there wrecking stuff so we, we, we had to to in order to have the show we had to be the show and and take care of the show we still were racing hard and stuff like that but it was not about tearing stuff up hmm. I was fortunate enough to sell that car to very Babb. I had it for sale. And I remember Bob Bab called me and he said, I'm calling. Old man Bob? Old man Bob called me. He said, I'm calling about that race car you got for sale. I'm like, yep. He says, What do you want for it? I said, A thousand bucks. He goes, That's too much money. I said, Well, maybe you ought to come down here and look at it. And I'll never forget it. They all came. All of them. All the Babs. All the Babs came down. Uh took a look at the car, took a look at the stuff I had for sale, and he said, write him a check, and they bought it. So I got rid of that one. So that was Barry Babs' first race car. Mm. So again, I mean, er- everything, you know, again, I was fortunate to sell it for good money. thousand bucks back then was good money, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, so there you are, Ken, that's for you, buddy. Yeah. And we still enjoy going there when we can, and not so frequent, but we try.
0: So this car, this uh car that is the blue and white orange zero
1: nine Buick Regal that's not a Monte Carlo. No, that was the next year. Oh,
0: okay, so anyway, this is where um this is where the whole grand National greg thing comes in, exactly. which is another one of your nicknames. Who gave you that name?
1: I have no idea. no, just I have no idea. Um, if that person's out there, please speak up on social media. I can't just media. call that
0: person because we don't know who we they are. We have
1: no idea who you are, but I'm not really sure.
0: But I see you with a checkered flag here. You got the Coke can on top. You're racing at Beach Ridge. You have a lot of success.
1: That was a Don LaTarte built race car. And I remember back then that, holy smokes, I got a Don LaTarte. I Him and Willie Elliott. Yeah, those are great and cars. And Steve Levitt, okay? And I didn't have a, I mean, the motor was okay. Uh, I did finally win one, and I... That was, I think, in July or August. And I remember pulling up and telling Andy I never thought I'd be here, you know what I mean? But got got on the cover of the program and won a race.
0: So Andy Cusack is the track announcer at this point? Yeah, back then, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: This is the most badass picture, and uh, it will probably be one of the um, highlight photos um, of the episode. Tell me about the 09 Monte Carlo with just the wheels hanging out like this.
1: The Monte Carlo deal was... Obviously the same chassis as the year before. But at that time I was uh, hanging around at Dick's Auto Repair and Body Shop in South Pole in the Cash Corner. And we got to know Dick and his his wife Gina Mm -hmm. pretty well. Uh, They actually did the paint work on the Regal the year before and a lot of the body work. And so I decided that I wanted to put a Monte Carlo SS body on it. And again, did all our own stuff. So I bought all these panels brand new and Dick decided that we would take the stock wheel well openings, move them up, bond them in. I mean, we had more hours. Now, you take, these are brand new panels, but we probably had 50 hours of body work. I mean, this guy was fussy. We, we took it to Race of Rammer and stuff, but that was that whole idea, and then I remember taking it to Scarborough Signs and have Joe Tufts do this thing. No idea what he's going to do. Just laid out the sponsors that we had, And then he calls me and says, your car's ready, come and pick it up. Now it's after dark. So we drive out there from South Pole in the truck and trailer and we get there and the place is dark. I'm like, wait a second. He just told me that this thing is done. And this is before graphics and everything. is just hand painted. The only graphics on this thing were the numbers Mm. and a couple other things. Everything else was hand done. And so I remember I cracked the door and it's unlocked. And then he comes around the corner and he's like, Close your eyes. Ooh. Okay, open them. He, and he hit a light off the number. And the number happened to be this reflective stuff. Yeah. All right, that nobody, no one.
0: At the time was at doing At the time.
1: I mean, obviously the photographers hated it at night because it bounced off that flash. But I'm like, oh my God, what is this stuff? And obviously he went on to win best looking car. And and that thing went good. Won some races with that thing. And that's probably my favorite car that i had as far as the looks bobby turner thinks that's the best steve perry
0: i think it's one of the best looking race cars i've ever seen well to this, to this day
1: appreciate it i mean that started somewhat of a, a new era on this paint job stuff mm. and getting a little bit wilder on the you know the graphics and stuff
0: personally i mean it's a simple paint scheme but, I mean, that's that's when I started to watch racing. You know, the NASCAR North before yep. the uh, the ACT split yep. and all that stuff. I mean, that's just a badass-looking race car.
1: Well, it's readable. Yeah. And that was always key with me with any sponsor I had. I want to be able to read that sponsor's name from the pit when he's out front or I'm out front or whatever. You're a salesman. Yeah. Do you ever well, do any sales? No. Oh, You
0: seem like quite the salesman.
1: Oh, there's a write-up there on one of the races that I won that. Andy Austin has said that I could sell uh, water skis to the people that live in the desert. So I said that. No, Oh, Andy okay. Cusack. Said oh, Cusack. Okay. Back when he was writing in the program. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But that would—that'd be something you'd say too.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I would not have said that. Next time out, we get into Greg's asphalt career, the time he threw away a championship at Beechridge, and the next generation of the Peters family picks up the torch and begins to make his own way. Your face lights up more about John than it has throughout this entire interview
1: talking about your own accomplishments. Absolutely. Anything I did, because Speed 51 was John Peters, sets fast time in practice three, John Peters and Jeff Taylor, the fast two, John Peters beats Bubba Falld, mm. and and again, yeah, I'm lit up now, dude. Because yes. I got the, I got the shivers talking about it.
0: That's next time out on the Open Trailer Podcast.